I'm going to speak today on how you can truly benefit from the feast. How you can truly benefit from it. Because when God gave his commandments, as we'll see here, that's his intention. Now let's notice Deuteronomy chapter 10 here. And uh, verse beginning here in verse number 12. Deuteronomy 10 and verse number 12. And now, O oh, now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve him, and um, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, when, uh, which I command you this day, for your good. For your good. So any command God has ever given us is for man's good. Oh, that's contrary to what men think, though, isn't it? Because the Bible says they view anything, they view the commandments of God as something unpalatable. And the natural mind is enmity against the law of God. But they were all given for our good, and that certainly includes these holy days and the feast days. Now in Leviticus chapter 23... This is a feast of tabernacles coming up. And we read here in verses 34 through 36. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The first day of this seventh month shall be the feast of trumpets. Now, coming up this Thursday, if you look on your calendar, I have one on mine. It says underneath Rosh Hashanah. That's the first day of the seventh month. And... Uh, so this is the 15th day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work in it. And on the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and you shall offering offering and so forth. It is a sacred assembly and you shall do no customary work on it. So here we have the command. Now we already saw that that command is given for man's good. And in uh, Deuteronomy 16, so my first point is this. How do we truly benefit from the feast? By obeying what God commands. It's for our benefit, not to harm us. And in Deuteronomy 16, beginning here in verse number 13, you shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you've gathered from your threshing floor and from your wine press. Now, what's interesting this year, I don't know how it affects every part of the country, but we had an absolutely unbelievable apple crop this year. I just couldn't believe it. And we've lived there 28 years, and uh, my wife put up 60 quarts of applesauce. And I can just say, lucky for her and for the kids, I don't like applesauce. If I did, it wouldn't be around too long. And uh, she made, I forget how many, uh, uh, we have a dryer that uh, Kent and I made back in the, when we moved up here in about 76 or so, and uh, it really takes a lot of material to fill that thing up. And I mean, it, I think it's 12 or 13, 14 large trays in it. And she filled that thing twice or three times and made uh, fruit leather. So, uh, fortunately for her and for everybody else, I don't like it either. 
But anyway, uh, I, what was amazed me is we went out, uh, outside and we looked over our grape crop is already in and our pears are already coming in before the feast. That's unusual because usually what happens is we don't get to harvest those until after we get home from the feast. So it's interesting because as it says here, you know, as I just read here, when you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your wine press. Now, of course, uh, keep in mind that uh, when these commandments were given many, many centuries ago, that per appertained right at that particular time to the conditions as existed in Israel, and that obviously was the normal case there. When we keep the feast all over the world, world and we're different latitudes and different temperatures, those things vary considerably. And uh, then it says, you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite, the strangerless, the fatherless, and the widow that are within your gates. Seven days you'll keep a solemn feast, and this new King James Version says, sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses. So it shows you once again here, here's the command to keep it. Now, of course... You have all kinds of people today. I was just thinking the other day, I went back to a class reunion. Um, I didn't go to the 50th year one, but uh, I think I went to the 45th year one. And uh, here are all my old school mates and associates and friends that I knew for many years. And you know something? I don't know how many people, there are a large number of people there, maybe a hundred or better. You know something? I was the only one that kept the Sabbath. None of the rest of them are Sabbath keepers. If they keep anything at all, it's Sunday. And probably most of them don't keep anything. So I can tell you, the people who obey God and really take his word seriously, of course, are the ones who have been called, but the ones who are willing to obey God. So what I'm saying here at this first point here, we want to derive the benefit from the feast. We better recognize the need to really obey God in these things. Now, notice here, is this feast done away? That's the argument you hear. Well, if it's done away, why do we read here in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 16, it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. That's right. They're going to keep it, whether they want to keep it or not. And it shall be that whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there shall be no rain. I'll tell you, you go three or four years without rain, you know, that'll be, be, make you begin to think. And if the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain, and they shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. I tell you, God's word means business. There are far too many people today, just take it lightly, nonchalantly. Now, we certainly know from the example that Jesus set that he kept the feast. The argument you hear today is, well, uh, it's done away. Yet we read here, Jesus' brothers and sisters, or whatever, whatever family members I think were here in John 7, and verse number 10, uh, his brothers, they were going up to the feast, 
as, as we read in verse 3, his brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go up to Judea. And uh, uh, they, in other words, they were going, as you read in verse 2, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. So that's the subject. Then you get down here. He didn't go up right away. But then we read in verse 10, when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly. He had a reason for doing that. Because he was not going to... Uh, be involved in a situation that attempted to take his life prematurely. He had some time to go. He had a three and a half year ministry to fulfill. But he kept the feast, didn't he? In fact, you can even read uh, later on in John 12, he stood up on that last day, the last day of the feast, and he gave this powerful message. So Christ certainly kept it. We know Paul did. It's in the New Testament. So the notion that it's done away with and we don't have to keep God's festivals or even the Holy Day for that matter is absolutely bogus. So that's the first point I want to emphasize. We want to truly benefit of the, from the feast. Well, let's obey God and keep it. Now, the second point. We need to go where God places his name. Now, that's been an enigmatical question for a lot of people. How do we know where God places his name? And now we're living in such a condition and state of affairs that you have Feast of Tabernacles all over the country. We can even hardly find a feast site over on the coast now because every, every little nook and cranny is taken up by one group or another. Even down at Gold Beach. So what we've had to learn, we better hang on to what we got. But anyway... Where does God place his name? That's the question. All right, back to Deuteronomy 16 and verse number 6. Deuteronomy 16, verse 6. He's talking here of certain instructions, and he says in verse 5, You may not sacrifice the Passover within your gates. So originally, you will recall... When they were instructed to keep the Passover, they kept it in their own homes in the land of Egypt. You remember that very specifically, don't you? Now they're told they, they're not to do it. They're to, they're to go where God tells them to go. But at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name there, there you shall sacrifice the Passover twilight at the going down of the sun. You see, where God chooses to make his name abide. And... Uh, and then in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse number 10. Deuteronomy 12 and verse 10. And there, there will be the place which the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And there you shall bring your offering, sacrifices, and so forth. So he has, a, he has a specific place where he's placing his name. And he said in verse 13... Take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses, in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and so on and so forth. And in verses 17 and 18, you may not eat within the gates the tithe. Well, we're talking here about the second tithe, obviously. Of your grain, or your new wine, or your oil, or your first, firstborn of your herd, or your flock or any of your offerings which you vow of your free will offerings or of your heave offerings, but you must eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God chooses. 
Now, that might be broader than just the second tithe, but it does emphasize here the necessity to go where God instructs you to go. So we find this emphasized a number of times in the scriptures. Now let's notice an interesting text here in Jeremiah the 7th chapter and verse number 3. Here God is uh, reproving his people and he said, Amend uh, your ways and your doings and I will cause you to dwell in this place, that is in the land. And uh, do not trust in these lying words saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. In other words, we have this temple and we have complete confidence that, that uh, we're God's people, but we can go ahead and live the way we want to live. And in verse 14, therefore, in other words, he's describing what he's going to do. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by name, my name and which you trust and to this place which I gave you to your fathers. So he's describing here now what's going to take place with it. And then he says here in verse 30, for the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to pollute it. Now, let's say this. Is there any guarantee because people once kept a feast of tabernacles here, once kept a feast of tabernacles there, that's where it's going to abide forever? I've had people say, well, we have to go to Big Sandy. Not so. As we'll see very clearly here, God has every power and he will remove it. And in Amos 5, you know, we see all this thing going on today about all these groups and these churches. But I can tell you one thing. Upholding the original truth that the church taught is not popular. It's so easy to be watered down, isn't it? And that's exactly what has happened. We have hundreds of watered-down churches of God out there. And we read here in Amos 5, verse number 21, I hate, I despise your feast days. You know, think of it in the light of what's going on today. I hate your feast days. Now, why would he say that? Very obviously because they're doing things that are contrary to God. They do not have his approval, even though they may think they do. And in Hosea 2, verse 11. Hosea 2, verse number 11. I will cause all her mirth, mirth to cease. Her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. Why? Well, because they're doing something wrong, aren't they? Now, let's notice something interesting here in Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 28, and verse number 58, here's what God says. If you do not carefully observe all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear his glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring upon you your descendants extraordinary plagues and so forth. What does it say here? You do not fear his glorious name. Now we already read we're to go to the place where, he is, where he's placed his name. But if you have people who are not honoring that name, 
What's he going to do? Is he going to bless them? Put his hand of approval on them? Psalm 119, verse 155. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Now, what does that tell you? But that should tell you and make it very clear that the only place God's going to place his name is where the people are obeying God, where the truth is. Now, I don't know of a single watered-down church today that's upholding the truth that was given to this church. People write me occasionally, and they'll say, uh, uh, should I fellowship with such and such a group, uh, even though they allow divorce and remarriage, and uh, they don't keep a proper Pentecost? And I usually tell them, you know, that decision is going to be yours, but you better realize this, a little leaven leavens a whole lump. When you get used to seeing something, how do you think the media works today? The media works today by introducing some obscene thing. And then as it begins to catch on, it becomes some major thing all over the place. And people get used to it, don't they? And if they get used to it, then they begin to accept it. So it should be very plain. God places his name where the truth is, where those people are obeying God. And that's something we better consider deeply. All right, now the third thing I want to say, if we want to have success, have a truly benefit from the feast, we need to prepare for it financially. You know, as I said earlier, there's not a thing in this life that's free. People think things are. And they've been led to believe that uh, you can get by without carrying your share. But it's going to work that way. Now, you read right back here in Deuteronomy 14, God made a provision. And here's what this provision is. Deuteronomy 14, verse number 22. You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain in a fit that the grain produces year by year. And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to, to make his name abide. The tithe of your grain and your wine and your oil, the firstborn of your herds and your flocks, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. But if the journey is too long for you so that you're not able to carry the tithe, or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name there is too far from you when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money, take the money in your hand, and go to the place which the Lord your God shall choose, and you shall spend that money for whatsoever your heart desires. Now, let me say this. What happens to you when you don't do that? Now, you may go ahead and keep the feast. But are you enjoying the feast the way God intended? How can you? For two reasons. Number one, you haven't prepared for it, so on your very strict budget, and you're worried all the time about how much you're going to spend here and there, and you can't really enjoy yourself and spend the way God wanted you to do to have a good time. And secondly... If you do it on credit cards, what have you done? And that's what a lot of people do. I want to give a sermon one of these days about what I call debt slavery. Because that's what credit cards have done to people. They've fallen sucker for that and they're literally enslaved in debt. If you do that, you've only hurt yourself. You have taken away the pleasure and the joy that God intended for you to enjoy when you go to the feast.
That's the purpose of it. And you're, you should be able to spend freely and enjoy yourself, not worry about it. But if you go there and you're worried about every cent you're going to spend, you're, going to, you're scrounging here and there and trying to get by here, you've just cheated yourself. That's all you've done. And you certainly haven't obeyed God in that. Now, let me just read something here. I thought this was very striking. I have about 25 sets of commentaries. And this is the first commentary I ever read that spells it out pretty plainly. Most of them will just gloss over this and they'll, they'll take this notion that uh, all these things that were commanded of God in the Old Testament no longer apply today. This is Deuteronomy 14 and this is Kaufman's Bible Commentary. And he said the money, he's talking about this particular text here, the money is to be used for a feast at the central sanctuary. Now, with regard to tithing, a few words are in order here. It has been a widespread conviction among the churches of the Restoration Movement. Now, what do we mean by the churches of the Restoration Movement? We mean the Protestant churches. You know something? Martin Luther was a brilliant man. Don't ever sell him short. He was a scholar, and he was an, an author. He was a composer. He was certainly an educated man. And he had got this notion in his mind that because he read a scripture there in their book of Romans and he misconstrued what it said, he got it in his mind that there are no such things as works. But what his problem was, in his way of thinking, works were those things that the Catholic Church had imposed on everyone. These various uh, rigmaroles you go through to supposedly receive forgiveness. And what really set him off the head of the Catholic Church, one of the very, very high-ranking moguls in the Catholic Church in the state of Germany, in that section of Germany, had set about to sell indulgences in advance, which meant that if you wanted to, you could pay the church in advance, and then if you sinned, it covered your sins. And he rebelled against that, and he, he had it in his mind that there's no such things as works. Now, I'm saying in a very simple manner, but that's what he said. Now he came to a real problem. How was he going to explain James? James said, faith without works is dead. And James knocked in the head his whole notion that there's no works. Martin Luther failed to see that the works that are required of all of us is obedience to God's law and God's commandments through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he couldn't understand. Never did understand it. And all the Protestant churches fell in line. And that's what we have today. So, it has been a widespread conviction among churches in the Restoration Movement that, quote, we don't have to tithe, unquote. But there remains somewhat to be said regarding this ancient duty that antedates Judaism, which was an established institution in the days of Abraham who gave tithes to Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God. And when Jacob promised to give a tenth to God following his vision at Bethel, he was not initiating a new obligation, but merely promising to fill in an obligation that already existed. So when did tithing begin? It didn't begin with Moses. It was long before that. Are not Christians children of Abraham? Well, we are, aren't we? Galatians 3.29. Then what kind of children are those who vow they have no duty to pay tithes? 
As seen in Deuteronomy and throughout the Pentateuch, the payment of tithes is vital and a continuing part of the duty that pertained to every Israelite. And what a strange thing it would be if the Israel of God, that's what the New Testament church is called, isn't it? Paul says we're the Israel of God. All right? What a strange thing would be if the Israel of God, which is the church, should have no obligation along this line. Jesus affirmed that the righteousness of his followers should exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, adding that unless it does so, one cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Certainly the Pharisees paid tithes on all they had. Now, there's one fellow. He's deceased now. I knew him quite well. I went with him on a baptizing tour in 1957. There's hardly a time he wasn't off on a tangent. He came along and said later, well, Jesus just preached the tail end of Judaism. So anything that he said really doesn't have any relevance for us today. Adding, it's also adding that uh, one, unless one cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Certainly the Pharisees paid tithes. And can a Christian's righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees when he persists in the denial that he should pay any tithes whatsoever? This is the very question that every Christian should ponder. Furthermore, there's a little verse from Hebrews 7, verse 8. There, it's quoting it, that is in heaven, and you can read it, it'll say that. He, Christ, that's who it's referring to, received tithes. This cannot be unless the followers of the Lord gave tithes. An application of these words to Melchizedek and to Christ is a distinction without a difference. It has not always been the conviction with some of us that tithing is a Christian duty, but from a lifetime of study and faithful practice of the obligation, we derive the certainty that those who neglect this duty do great injury to themselves. Now, they never think they do because they always got this expense coming up and this expense coming up, and they, they have a reason to constantly not, not take care of their obligation before God. To us it appears as a plain duty to tithe one's income for the Lord's work, nor can we truthfully say that even, even that sufficiently fulfills the duty to give us what we have been prospered. As the years pass and we see God's work languishing for lack of funds and at the same time thousands of Christians wallowing in luxurious wealth unknown anywhere in the earth, the sacred obligation of the faithful Jew in the matter of tithing contrasts dramatically with the behavior of countless Christians who give what amounts to a pittance to the work of God. Very good comment. And certainly true. Now, I bring that up because, it, because we're discussing the matter of the second tithe. And that certainly includes the first and the third. So, I say financial preparation is a very important part of having a successful feast. And if you don't have that, you're going to be worried, you're going to be concerned. You're either going to scrounge to get by or you're going to go into debt by using credit cards. It's a sad indictment for the people who ought to know better. All right, the next point. If you attend the feast, attend for the right purpose. Now, why do I say that? Because most children, and even a lot of teenagers, by the time they're getting up to puberty, they don't go to the feast for the right purpose. They go to the feast to have a good time. And I wonder how many adults go to the feast for a good time. You know, one of the things that 
this whole world is condemned for, and I'm afraid it even affects a number of our people. It reads in Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Do you fear God? Or is he off someplace and, uh, you know, you kind of got him in your hip pocket and you can do what you want to do or you can call on him when you need him? I'll tell you one thing I've noticed about people. When they get in some jam and then their children get sick, well, you see where they come running right away. They don't go to the doctors. Now, do you think God's duty-bound to, to be kind and answer them? Well, that's between them and God. I can't say that. But I would just say this. Uh, I'd be awful antsy if I was negligent on what God required of me and then I go to him for help. He's liable to say, why should I help you? You don't help me. Not that God needs your help, but that certainly is a, is a requirement to, to obey God. Deuteronomy 14, verse number 23. I read over this a few minutes ago. I didn't want to emphasize it for this reason. But here's what we read. You shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name. And the various things mentioned here. That you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So the primary reason for attending the feast is to learn to fear God. Now let me give you a case in point. Back in the old days when we first started attending the Feast of Tabernacles, we had two meetings a day. And on the opening night, including that, there were three on that day. And sometimes people lived uh, 50 miles away, you know, and it was just an absolute rat race to get to every service in time. By the time the feast was over, people were exhausted. But I can tell you, they, they got a lot of messages. We have tried to uh, be a little bit better balanced than that. We have 12 sermons. Now stop and think about it. What are you getting in that eight days? You're getting the equivalent of three months' sermons right at that point. Three months. That's a lot of information in, in seven or eight days. So you see, you're, you should be being fed the Word of God and the things that will help you and in many ways and edify and so forth. But you see, it's to fear God, isn't it? To have a respect and reverence for God. Deuteronomy 31, verse number 10. At the end of seven years, at the appointed time in the year released, at the Feast of Tabernacles. So this is the seventh year, but specifically the Feast of Tabernacles. When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law before Israel in their hearing. Now, keep in mind, that was a time period when people did not have access to the, to the scriptures. Well, the scriptures were located in the synagogues, and when they went to the synagogues on the Sabbath, portions of those scriptures were read, and that was the extent of their exposure to the Word of God. As can anybody be without excuse today when we had the printing press invented in the 1500s and everybody can have a Bible and read and study it? Yet I dare say there's a number of you here that probably don't even crack your Bibles, or if you do, it's rare, and only on the Sabbath day. Am I right? Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger. So the children were involved in this. That the, and the, who's within your gates. That they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God. Notice that. Learn to fear. 
People don't ordinarily fear God, do they? Why? Because he's gone off someplace and they don't seem to have any real relationship with him. What about you? Deuteronomy 12, verse number 5. As we read here, I'm not going to read all of this, but he says, You shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses to place his name there. Then it says here, You shall enjoy these various offerings and things. And then this is the next point I want to emphasize, And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice. So it is a time to learn to fear God, but it's also a time to rejoice. But if you make the rejoicing the central part of the feast, what have you done? You've missed the most important part of it. You're there to learn to fear God and have reverence. And if you don't fear God, you'll learn it one way or the other, sooner or later. You know, it's a whole lot easier to learn the easy way rather than the hard way. Now, I know some parents, I'm not saying our group necessarily, but I've seen this in times past. I've seen parents who have been so negligent of their children during the feast, and they just give them money and let them run wild. We have had youngsters that fornicate at the feast. We have had them do drugs. One fellow was drunk, and he felt real bad, and he didn't tell his parents this was a teenager, and he didn't tell his parents he was, he'd been drunk and he had a hangover. So they called the minister, and he went down there and anointed him for his sickness. Hypocrisy. What are you teaching your children? Are you teaching them, teaching them fear and respect for God and to have reverence for him during this festival? That's what you better be doing. Deuteronomy 6, verse 24. Deuteronomy 6, verse 24. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes. To fear the Lord your God always. That's the main purpose. That he might preserve us alive as of, as of this day. So let's remember, if we go there for the right purpose, the primary purpose is to learn to fear God and respect him. To see what we can learn and profit by it. And then, of course, to have an enjoyable time. But not to get drunk. Not to overindulge. Not to make a pig out of yourself. Not to see how much alcohol you can drink. That's absolutely out of line. Everything should be done in moderation and good common sense. All right, here's the next point I want to make. You want to have a good feast? Don't sow discord. Don't come with the idea you've got your little pet notion and all of a sudden now you're going to make it known to people around the place. That's not going to fly. Here's what the Bible says. I mean, this thing of causing discord, I can tell you one thing. It's a serious offense in the sight of God. And here's what you read in Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6, verse number 16. These six things the Lord hates. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. Now, I'm not going to read them all. I just want to emphasize the last one here is the last part of verse 19. One who sows discord among brethren. 
God hates that. Now let me ask you this question. Do you think it's going to go unnoticed in the sight of God? And we better realize some of these things. It's not the time to come to uh, push your views and your ideas and, and things that are contrary to what this church has believed and taught for many years and what is certainly provable both scientifically and biblically. Now let's notice here in uh, Psalm 133, verse 1. Here's an important rule to go by. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Now, I can remember when I went to that class reunion I was talking about earlier. I saw this fellow come to the door and I said to myself, uh-oh, here comes trouble. I'd known him clear back in high school and he was trouble. And he came there to that particular group and lo and behold, you know, he's a married man, lo and behold, he started making passes at some of the, the men's wives. I tell you, some of these people, they just can never give up their ways, can they? Sowing discord, causing problems, disunity. Well, that's one thing we cannot tolerate. Now, in James 3, verse number 14, here's what the Bible says. You know, most people who do that kind of thing, they have a motivation for doing it. They may not even realize it themselves. But it's something to think about and examine ourselves. And as we say here, if you have bitter envy and self-seeking, or as it says here, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. And then verse 18 says, Now the fruits of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Who make it. That's an important rule to keep in mind. And in Proverbs 16, 28. Proverbs 16, 28. A perverse man sows strife. That's right. And in 2 Timothy 2, verse number 23. Uh, there's much that could be said on this. I'm just hitting a, a few points here. 2 Timothy 2 and verse number 23. Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. I tell you, people argue about some of the silliest things at times. They don't amount to a thing as far as salvation is concerned. They'll get into an argument about it and it'll go on and on. Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes knowing that they generate strife. If you're smart, you'll just avoid it. And back to Proverbs once again. Proverbs 22 and verse number 10. Cast out the scoffer and contention will cease. Yea, strife and reproach will cease. Now, the best way you can handle that is just get away from somebody who's acting that way. Because that certainly is not... Is not a godly way and it is certainly not the way to keep the feast why do I bring this up because it's happened before you know I like to go to feast and have a good time I don't like to have to go to feast and have to deal with problems I don't enjoy it at all and I don't think uh, you would enjoy it either 
So let's remember what we're told here in Ephesians 4, verse 1. You better walk worthy of the calling to which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing one with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what our admonition is. So let's remember, if we're going to go to feast, we want to avoid anything that sows discord. Now, maybe sometimes you can't help it. You know, you might do something that's right and somebody gets, gets offended. You can't be responsible for people think if you're doing the right thing. But by the same, same token, you, just, you need to be aware that those, those possibilities exist. All right, here's, a, here's the next one I want to emphasize. Have love for the brethren. Now let me ask you. When it comes to a, to a knowledge of the truth, who do we have but one another? That's true. We don't all have the same interests. And probably if we'd never been called to a knowledge of the truth, we wouldn't have anything in common. But what is the bond that holds us together? It's the truth, isn't it? Now, do we, who's responsible for, for each of us? God is. Now, if we can't have any consideration and love and compassion and patience for our brothers, what are we doing? We're snubbing God is what we're doing. We don't like the people because they have this fault and that fault. Well, you name me one single person on the face of this earth that doesn't have faults. You want to find out where mine are, ask my wife. Well, no, don't. We all have them. No one is perfect. And we can recognize that and accept it and learn to live with it. Overcoming is a lifelong process. And it takes a long time for people to overcome their problems and their difficulties. And unfortunately, some of them never seem to do. But here we read in John 13, verse number 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. You know, the word love here in uh, this context means having an outgoing concern for other people. But the problem with so many of us is, and this is true of human nature, we're so self-centered, we always think of ourselves first. Well, I can tell you, we need to realize that other people matter too and other people count too. And we want to be considerate. Do we always live up to it? I don't. I try. But I don't think any of us live up to it the way we really ought to. In Colossians 3... Verse number 14. Colossians 3, 14. Above all things, put on love, which is a bond of perfection. You know, the Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. People got faults. You know, maybe somebody offends you or done, has done something that has upset you. You know what love is? You're not going to let it sit in your craw and just dwell there and be a, become a burn your saddle and just be a constant source of irritation to you every time you see that person. That's wrong. Maybe you should mention, as the Bible says, you know, go to that brother and get it straightened out. Now, if, the, if you get that straightened out, then why are you going to continue? You know, I know people sometimes they'll, 
they'll get offended, they'll have some problems with someone, and then they'll get it ironed out, and then from that time on, they won't have a thing to do with them. Maybe the man's really repented before God. Maybe he's apologized. What else do you want? You want having to get down on your knees and, and wag his tail and, and scrape and bow before you? I don't think that's necessary. But I can tell you, if you lack love, you'll hold a grudge. And that's really, you're doing yourself a great disservice. 1 John 4 and verse number 20. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. Yeah, you got gripes, and you got grudges, and you got this against this person, you got that against that person. What are you doing? You're living a lie. If you say you love God. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Very clear, isn't it? And in 1 Peter 4, verse number 8. Above all things have fervent love, one for another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. You know, one of the things we need to learn, we just have to accept people for what they are. The problem with a lot of people, this, this happens in marriages all the time. She wants to marry him. He's so handsome. He's so cute. And he wants to marry her because she's sexy. Now, he doesn't like this about her, and she doesn't like this about him. But somehow they seem to think in their minds, when they get married, they'll change him. I can tell you, folks, that's a daydream. You're not going to change anything. The only thing you can change is yourself. And the fact is, when you realize a person is such and such a way, learn to live with it. Roll with the punches. Learn to be happy instead of being sitting there with an with a ulcer eating away. That isn't going to solve anything. So you see, what I'm saying here is love will cover a multitude of sins. Don't dwell on those things that are distressing. Don't just keep your mind on those things. Use your mind for something positive. And 1 John 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is begotten and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Outgoing concern for the other person. That's all it means. Remember, as we read in Romans 5, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's where it comes from. If you can't have that in your heart and mind, then you ought to be asking yourself, do you have the Holy Spirit? Is that Spirit working with you? All right, the last point. Pray for success for yourself and for the feast in general. Pray that you can have a successful feast and pray that the feast will be successful. And that entails a number of things. Never are you going to find a situation where everything is perfect. You know, it would be a good idea if everyone would sit down once a year and read through Murphy's Law. 
it might help a great deal to realize, you know, don't always expect perfection. Everything's going to work out the way it does. It seldom does. Because as Murphy Law says, if anything can go wrong, it will go wrong. Absolutely. I've had people complain about everything under the sun. Let's notice Jeremiah 32, verse 17. You know, I talk about the importance of prayer here. And let's notice what we read here in verse number 17. Oh, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Now, if we prayed, do you think God can really bless our feast and help, help us have a good time? 1 Corinthians 2, 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 9. I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed them through his Spirit. So we can't even imagine what God is capable of doing. Ephesians 3, verse 20. Ephesians 3 and verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above, above all that we ask or think. Now if we ask for God's blessing, will he give it to us? He sure will if our hearts are right. You can't make the feast successful for anybody else. But you can sure make it successful for yourself if you pay heed. And remember, clear back here, the patriarch Job said this. This is in Job chapter 42 and verse number 2. Job 42 and verse 2. I know you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Now, when we go to the feast, are we fulfilling a purpose that God has set for us? You bet he has. And it's his intention we enjoy the feast and have a good time. And to enjoy ourselves properly, let's pay heed to what we've heard today. <laughs>